Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Tuesday, the thirteenth. Oh, Tuesday the thirteenth. Oh, it's not like Friday the thirteenth. No, not 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 like Friday. We are back on the Sports and More podcast with Eddie Morelos here in downtown El Paso, Texas. Here at the downtown spaces at five twenty two San Francisco. Once again, get all your office needs met over here at the downtown spaces. If you need a space, if you're an entrepreneur trying to start up a business, this is the best place to come. If you need a place to rent for a conference, this is another place to get to. It's in downtown El Paso, Texas, five twenty two. San Francisco. Andy, welcome back. Taco Tuesday, my friend. It's Taco Tuesday. You know what? I'm giving in and I'm saying that it is. It's Taco Tuesday. It's ta- there it is, everybody. It's Taco Tuesday, official from the Maya. Whatever works for you, you know? So uh, what works for me is Thai Tuesday. Yay! That's good stuff, man. Hey, uh, lots of sports went on this weekend. Lots, tons, tons. tons. And the the crazy thing, Ace, is that you got to watch very little. (laughs) I, you know, I did. I did. We had a obviously our high school stuff on Friday, and then Saturday was a birthday party and a wedding. Sunday was trying to sort through all that stuff. There you go, man. I I get it, man. Busy times. But, um, I mean, I I got to uh, follow a lot of sports this weekend. And on Saturday in the evening, uh, well, let me me take a step back. On Saturday morning, I worked some volleyball games. I worked volleyball over at UTEP. Really? Uh, They had an exhibition match uh, against Angelo State. And uh, so I got to get a glimpse of the UTEP volleyball team. And, uh, you know, we had Ben Wallace uh, mm-hmm. Head coach Ben Wallace of the UTEP Miners on uh, one of our episodes earlier in the season, um, and uh, you know they're young, they're they're young. You could tell. Um, I've been watching volleyball for about fifteen years now, and and you could tell that they're young and they're 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 going to start learning a lot of great things from Coach Wallace. I know that. Um, they they got off to a slow start in the morning. They had two matches, one at ten and one at the second one at three. In that morning match, they got off to a very slow start. Angelo State um, kind of jumped out on them and and uh, won that first set. Uh, then the Miners came back and and they uh, pulled off the victory in, in these, these exhibition matches. But it was real, it was a lot of fun. I did stats and uh, it was it was just a great time. I'm just glad that they're still getting the opportunity to at least you know play. I mean, maybe that's not official games, but they're still out there, you know. You know, participating, and that was the encouraging part for me is that I got to work a game. You know, we take things for granted, and there was, you know, I can remember days where I'm like, oh, I gotta go work another game. Oh, here we go again. I gotta work more, and because we do, we you know, in our industry, we work a lot. And we, but again, it's like somebody else. I think it was Duke said earlier. Um, it's not really a job. It's a lot no, of fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> that's, get, that's we, get, a, we get the best seat in the house. Exactly. Eh? And I, and I did. I was right there, center court. As, as You know, when I'm studying, I'm typically center court. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a fun gig. And I, I'm very, very grateful for it. And especially during these times of the pandemic, it's really made me open my eyes and, and see how blessed we truly are. Ace. We, we're very, very blessed in this uh, sports industry that we're a part of we are we are so, now speaking of saturday i heard a lot of stuff going on on saturday i think uh what was it alabama and uh mississippi hold miss yeah there was a mm-hmm. plenty of college football to be played <laughs> um and, and again speaking of college football we will have a bowl game here in el paso texas on yeah. december the 31st 
um, over at, at noon at Sun Bowl Stadium. Um, it's going to be the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. Uh, once again, Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, December 31st at noon. Get your tickets. Call 915-533-4416. We will be selling tickets. Uh, there's going to be right now the, the cap uh, space is going to be the same as the UTEP games, which I believe is 8,600. And again, it'll feature teams from the ACC and teams from the Pac-12. The Pac-12 starts play here in a couple weeks, uh, I believe in two weeks. Um, so... Again, get your tickets, uh, Tony the Tiger Sumble. Go to sunbull.org, sunbull.org, and uh, buy your tickets soon so you don't miss out because who knows who we might get. Right now, there are, I believe, um, three teams in the top five out of the ACC. Really? Yeah, three in the top five. Number one, Clemson. Mm-hmm. Number four, they're putting Notre Dame in the ACC this year. So number four, Notre Dame. Number five, can you? Here, I'm going to throw this out. You're gonna, you got to guess who's number five in the country? Florida State. Nope, wrong. They are not in the top twenty-five. They were no? here in the Sun Bowl previously. No, they have. They've only won one game. Oh, okay. Uh, number five is uh, North Carolina. Oh, that's right, Matt, The UNC, Matt, yeah? yeah, the UNC Tar Heels with Coach uh, Mac and uh, Mac Brown. And um, the you know, former Longhorn legend, the former Longhorn legend. I've heard mm-hmm. him speak. He's a great, great speaker, by the way. And um, the North Carolina Tar Heels. Everybody knows them for basketball, right? They're they're in the top five for football now, and uh, we had them here. I think it's only been about three years. About now. three years, three years. Yeah, and um, you know their head coach. Oh man, I, I forget his name at the moment, but their head coach at the time was so open to everything. Yeah, he, they were cool. They were cool. They were really great with the media. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you got some good photos and stuff. And, you know, I'll never forget um, a couple of my interns, former interns, who one of them now is a uh, – uh, she's on the news, KVIA, uh, Brianna Chavez. Mm-hmm. She was an intern for me at the time. And they went out and did uh, interviews um, with, with Coach. And that's I, I, she fell in love with doing the interviews, you know, and they really had a great time. And shoot, look at her now, KVIA. Uh, Channel Seven here in El Paso. I, I remember those because uh, for for those that don't know, they get to visit a uh, Fort Bliss, and Fort Bliss takes them on some um, little like uh, tours with the the tanks and and the guns and stuff like that. Well, everybody's social media now, so these guys are on their phone, I guess, FaceTiming their mom. And they're like, "Look, Ma, I'm on a tank. I'm on a tank." You know? oh, yeah. And they're so excited. They, they love that that <laughs> trip to the to the Army base, Fort Bliss here here in El Paso. Uh, it's one of the highlights of the trip. Unfortunately, this year because of the pandemic and everything going on, it doesn't look like we're going to get to do all those extra things. But we will have a game, so, and that's so a good that's, thing. We'll we'll have a game. That okay. is a good thing. So uh, back to college football. Um, locally, the mm-hmm. uh, UTEP Miners were on the road against Louisiana Tech. Yeah, they thought that that hurricane was going to get them, but then it opened up. And- well, it was crazy because I woke up that morning and literally on all the news stations that I was watching, they were talking about the hurricane there in Louisiana. And that was at about 7 in the morning. And I kept thinking to myself, how are they going to have a game with what they're telling me right now on the news? Well, it stopped raining about noon, apparently, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of cleared up. And they, from what I listened to on the radio with uh, Mr. John Teicher, the voice of the miners, uh, he kept saying over and over, the beautiful night for football. Right. Beautiful night. I think it was like 80 degrees and humidity was kind of high, but that's okay. And hey. It wasn't raining, so that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that was a great thing. Uh, but the UTEP Miners, uh, they held their own against Louisiana Tech. I, I think they held their own. Um, the, to me, from what I was listening to, 
Uh, the penalties really hurt them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are, are – I, I listen to the post-game show all the time, uh, the one with Adrian Broaddus where the, they have a lot of uh, – Shout out to calls. Adrian. Yep, shout out to Adrian. Um, but a lot of the people were complaining about the play calling. And um, for me, again, the, the difference of the game was the penalties. That's – get those penalties out of the way, and I think the play calling would have been different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's just my point of view. Uh, great job to the Miners. I'm really excited to work this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Miners will play on ESPN2 at 5.30 uh, p.m. Mountain Time. So, again, ESPN2, you can catch the UTEP Miners. Um, always talk, we're always talking about them, so maybe you've, uh, those of you listening, California, Arizona, uh, on the East Coast, you're like, oh, let's find out what this guy's talking about. Tune in to ESPN2 on Saturday, and you can catch the UTEP Miner football team. Exactly. It's going to be a packed Saturday, as obviously. Yeah, because uh, there's another event going on that day after another local victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the El Paso Locomotive won uh, this past weekend, and I believe they're going into the semifinals now, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly, and, and the way they won, it was via penalty kicks. Yeah, I, I wrote that down. The, the PKs uh, went into a uh, extra time, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, they 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 won in penalty kicks. So now they're going to take on. And to me, it sounds like it's become a rivalry. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mexico, Mexico United, United. yep, mm-hmm. and uh, it's another home match for the El Paso Locomotive, uh, which again is right here in the heart of downtown El Paso. Um, and the tickets are already sold out. That's how fast they're going. They're, wow, well, their max capacity is already sold out. It's barely Tuesday. Yeah. The gone. game the game happened on Saturday. Like I said, football is very big in this town, Eddie. So very within big. two days. The max capacity was already gone. I don't know those official numbers, but I think it's around 1,200 at least. Yeah, I think they creeped up yeah, uh, a mm-hmm. couple extra hundred. Mm-hmm. I think they started at about 800, if I'm not mistaken, when they finally mm-hmm. let fans back in. And then they creeped up a little bit. And they're probably about, yeah, it sounds about right, 1,200. Uh, which, again, Southwest Uni- uh, University Ballpark is such a great venue. If you have not been there yet, get here just to look at it from the outside at least um there's a lot of great things going on here in downtown el paso a lot of great uh scenery historic uh spots as well uh but the ballpark is beautiful and wow sold out already. sold out if not you can watch it on i believe on the cw with mr duke keith i, I hope yeah. it's on the cw because they've been showing them mainly on espn plus that's right yeah but uh if it's on the cw i think so either uh, or well either way i'll be working in football games so <laughs> no no football game will be over well it should be. The game's not till seven thirty yet. Yeah, time. Oh, I can watch the second half. I might come down and watch through the fences. <laughs> and that's what that's what people are doing at the high school games. Right? Oh, really? Yeah, because a lot of them now, I believe, uh, is yesterday, EPISD and everybody else. Um, they're no longer, well, at this point, allowing fans. Um, it's only going to be, I guess, restricted to game day personnel. So. Like, I know driving to the game at the SAC, the Davaya game, there's the canal that's, you know, overlooking right there the stadium, and you had a bunch of trucks already lined up. Remember at the Burgess-Mountwood game, people were on the fence watching. You know, they're, they're trying to, other than the streams, they're still trying to get that live that live scene. Well, you know, uh, that's that's a, a big issue here in El Paso. Um, you know, the, the parents and, and everybody here in El Paso is really passionate about football. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very passionate. So I can understand the frustrations uh, with that. But again, we need to all be safe. 
and, and remember what's what's going on right now, especially as we see the news and um, a lot of uh, record-breaking numbers, not in a positive sense. Uh, but again, we can overcome this uh, by doing the right things of washing your hands, using the hand sanitizer, wearing your mask, uh, keeping the distance, things like that. Uh, but again, let's just be safe. And then I, I get it. We all want to get back to normal, quote unquote, normal life. And we want to take in the sports. But again, let's just be safe so that we can get back to that. And, and I get it. Um, there's ways to watch. For example, there's ways to follow. Um, mm-hmm. A great example is the Friday night football show that the El Paso Herald Post puts on every Friday night. The Herald Post end zone. The Herald Post end zone, Friday night, you can catch, you can get the updates to every game in El Paso. Mm-hmm. That's plain. <laughs> That's plain, exactly. Not the canceled ones, of course, or the postponed <laughs> ones, of course. But, again, all the ones that are on on Friday night, go to, go to Facebook, search for the El Paso Herald Post. You'll see the links there. You'll see the information. And they send out reporters to every game yeah, so you can get – in-game updates throughout the night and i i watched uh, the past two weeks i've got on for a few minutes at a time and, and it's great you know chatting about football you're going to catch uh, catch up uh, get all your updates about the what's going on in the city of el paso and mm-hmm. again it's a great show uh ace you helped put that together what do you think man oh it's good it's good it's a a new a new challenge but it, it, it's we got so many teams here that we're able to do it um it, it, it just it brings another level of exposure for these athletes and, and parents and, and, you know, getting these kids, you know, some recognition. And it's it's a fun project, and, you know, we're excited. We're going to take it week by week, obviously, because things are changing. Um, some some games are getting postponed. I know Fabens, they think the first school district to suspend sports indefinitely for now. Um, so people are trying to adjust. Um, but hopefully – these numbers can, you know, start to dip and, you know, we can try to get back to, you know, regular life. So, again, everybody do the right things and, and we'll get back there. And um, back to sports, um, you know, there was a, a, a big game on last night on TV. Uh, and uh, as I always say, baseball is better. I love watching baseball. And it was a great, great time between the Atlanta Braves and the L.A. Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. Dodger fans don't hate on Eddie. Come on. <laughs> okay, people, we got it wrong, all right? The Padres didn't go as far as we thought what they were. They, they <laughs> so, again, uh, the Braves defeated the Dodgers 5-1. to one. My buddy Joshua Corrales was out there. He made it all the way to, to, to uh, Arlington. And really? He got in. Uh, they, his, his son had a tournament, I, I think, in, I don't know, somewhere Anyways, and then we, they went to the game, and uh, they got in this brand-new ballpark. Yes, it's huge. I didn't realize that, that yesterday was the first time that they were going to have fans in that ballpark. It, it's huge. I mean, the original, that the one that's still new, I mean, I, I call it kind of new, but that one was big. This one next to Jerry World's, wow. <laughs> and, that, and that's what they were, they did a, um, a shot from above, you know, a drone shot or something like that, and... And the the comparison to Jerry's World to that AT and T Stadium, yes, it's huge. I could huge. I cannot believe it. It's huge. And uh, so again, the Braves uh, they defeated the Dodgers. The uh, Braves and Dodgers play again tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what happens. You know, the Dodgers typically make it to the playoffs year in and year out. But can they seal the deal? And that's the question. And, and you know, it's like the Yankee fans. They were you know a lot of Yankee fans were all hurt because again they get they spend all this money year in and year out, make the playoffs, have all these big bombers, choke it in the playoffs. Not choke. It's momentum, man. It's it's it's, it's about it's, who's, it's, it's, it's who's on fire. I mean, you can have 
billion dollar roster, but you still got to hit the ball. Oh yeah, you know. But speaking of speaking of baseball, did you see Manny Margot? I wanted to get to that Ooh. Manny Margot, and he, you know the cool thing again. And I get the chills even just as you brought it up. And I and I thought think about sitting in the press box at Southwest University ballpark. We got to see him a lot. Oh, we got to see do those same exact plays. Maybe not go over the thing because we don't have that. But it's it's cool to see that. So what, once again, El Paso Chihuahuas, AAA baseball team for the Padres. So many players come through here, and we get to see them in the pro levels. And, and again, Margot, another example. Well, he had that big, what was it, three-run shot, and he got that, that catch? Yeah. What a remember, day. Remember, he was playing here just a few years ago, people. He was leading off for the for the Chihuahuas. Yeah. So, again, um, you know, baseball is in full full swing. Uh, wrapping up the the season here, the the NLCS and the ALCS, and then uh, before you know it, the World Series will be here. And uh, but then switching uh, switching gears again uh, to basketball to Mister LeBron James. So, so for those that may or may not know, I am a Lakers fan. Uh, Lake Show, baby! Uh, another championship <laughs> in our number seventeen, I believe it is. <laughs> I want to say it's something oh, like seven, that. The seventeen, and uh, you know. It was it was great to see as a Lakers fan uh, uh, for the organization another championship come to back to LA uh, where it belongs. Um, you know, again, I've mentioned time after time I'm not the biggest of LeBron fans, but it was cool to see the whole team very excited uh, to get the victory to get the championship. But are you excited? Because you don't sound that excited. It's- I have a note here, Ace. I have a note because uh, LeBron was named the MVP. Mm-hmm. Should have went to Anthony Davis. Shots fired. Shots fired. So it went to, I mean, he, yeah, he stepped it up. He did. He stepped, and they were talking about how you know LeBron poured into him throughout the year, and and how hardworking Anthony Davis was, and and I thought he did well, and and you know LeBron did good too, but but how did he do in the finals? He did pretty well. Well, or MVP? I thought he did. He deserved it. I thought he did, but again, who am I? I'm just a guy in a booth. <laughs> Shout out to the Lakers so, Lakers uh, 2020 COVID champions I mean uh, 2020 NBA champions <laughs> You can't put an asterisk They still played yeah. But you know you know what Shout out to Commissioner what are, are we Reading that stat You know 100 and something games Whatever Couple months Zero positive cases and, and again You know With everything going on The bubble seems to work But the bubble is expensive uh, And NHL I believe did the bubble as well. Mm-hmm. But that, Same that's, thing. Some money. Same that's, thing. That's uh, money. It is, and and that's with everything that we do. The, you know, who has the money? Who doesn't? You know, they talk about the high schools, and in, in, in particular in New Mexico right now, there's no sports, and everybody's going crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, let my kid play, and I get it, I get it. But who's going to do the testing? Who's going to pay for the testing? At the high school level, nobody. I just had when they get sick. Who's going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing the parents aren't thinking about. But again, the bubble does seem to work. It worked for the NBA, worked for the NHL. They were talking about it for the MLB, but they didn't do it. You saw what happened there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing what's happening in the NFL. Ooh, your Titans. Ooh, NFL's mad at the Titans, tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think they're playing tonight. No, I think they're still. Oh, no, you're right. They're back on. You're right. They're back on. Yeah, tonight. Uh, they messed up everybody else. but <laughs> On a Tuesday. NFL on a Tuesday. Wow. Hey, it's so, okay. Uh, but, yeah, uh, speaking of basketball, um, bringing in our next guest, who was a former uh, college basketball coach. He was an assistant under Hall of Fame coach um, Lou Hansen. 
under Hall of Fame coach Don Haskins. So he's pretty well known around this area. He is also um, an author of uh, a few books. I have one right here with me. It's called All the Dreams We've Dreamed, a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's West Side. And he's also a musician. Does it all. You know what What, what uh, instrument he plays? I do not. Oh, you're going to find out here coming up oh, soon. So boy. we will be bringing on Mr. Russ Bradbird here shortly and uh, we're going to talk about his books we're going to talk about his time with don haskins and lou hansen and also his music so uh coming up next is mr russ bradbird welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the sports and more podcast with eddie morelos and we're here once again at the downtown spaces located at 522 san francisco in the heart of downtown el paso texas um, with asa costa once again uh, my producer and we now have our guest with us mr russ bradbird welcome russ how are you doing today hi eddie it's great to be with you i'm fine Awesome, Russ. Uh, you know, I was telling the the audience a little bit about you earlier. Uh, you are a former assistant coach in, co- in the college hoops realm. You are also an author of many books, and you are also a musician. Uh, let's go ahead and touch on the, the, the college basketball part really quick. Um, you coached under Mr. Don Haskins and Mr. Lou Hansen, correct? Yeah, I was with, I was with uh, Don Haskins for eight years. And then I was with the uh, with the Ag. That was all, mostly in the eighties, you know, the, the, the mid eighties. And then uh, I was with uh, New Mexico State for six years, and three of those years were with Neil McCarthy, and three of them were with Lou Henson. So you basically got to uh, experience three different kinds of personalities, correct? Yeah, they were they were they were they were very different, and. Uh, but, you know, particularly with, with Don Haskins and Lou Henson, I think it's really interesting to compare and, and contrast just because they had pretty, they had pretty close, you know, pretty similar careers. They were in the, you know, a lot of time in the same area, down on the border area. And in some ways, they, you'd be surprised at how similar they were in some ways. And then, of course, how different they were in many others. Well, uh, Don Haskins uh, led the UTEP Miners to a national championship uh, in 66, 1966, and uh, Lou Hansen led the uh, New Mexico State uh, Aggies to the Final Four in 1970. Uh, but you joined uh, both of their, their crews, I guess, in the late 80s, mid-90s to late 90s. Um, talk about maybe if you if you can the difference from that area when they took you know their teams into into the the tournament and deep and winning compared to the time that you were a part of uh, their their groups. Well, I, I think the game was a little bit different then. With uh, well, eighty the three came in and maybe eighty six, but you know I think what what uh, what Lou Henson and Don Haskins were doing that was different is they didn't. Care. They weren't counting the number of black kids on the team. They were just they were just going after the best players that they could get, and and they were I think they were both pretty colorblind in, in, in that way. They weren't you know they weren't it wasn't with neither, neither of them ever asked me well what color is that guy or we need to get some white guys or we really need a black point guard or anything like that. Um, but I think I think the game you know recruiting has evolved I think radically over the years, Eddie. I'll give you an example of it is that, you know, I quit coaching in 2000 and I never owned a cell phone when I was recruiting. Now think about that for a minute. I don't know. I don't know if it would be even possible to be a recruiter today without it, without a cell phone. And I think with, with, you know, back in when 
John uh, Haskins and Lou Henson were doing it in the 1960s, you know, it was mostly with letters and, uh, you know, an, an occasional phone call. And then in a very special occasion, you might fly off to see a recruit. But I think they were getting a lot of those recruits sight unseen. Now, occasionally we would take a guy sight unseen, too, just on recommendation if we were desperate. And it often worked out. But, but uh, I, I think, you know, recruiting, I think, is constantly evolving. And the truth is, I don't know that much about what it's like today because I've never, I've never texted a recruit or said to recruit a website or, or anything like that. So um, here's a random question for you. During your time with the, the minors and during your time with New Mexico State, uh, of all the, the kids you coached during those times, who are your, I guess, and not necessarily your favorite, and maybe it is your favorite, or, or just somebody who stands out in your memory uh, from each organization, one from the minors that you, when you were there and one from New Mexico State when you were there? Well, the natural choice for, for UTEP people would, would think is Tim Hardaway, who, of course, was the best best player I ever recruited by far. But the one that I, I often go back to in my mind is is the Johnny Melvin story. You know, he'd come from utter poverty, just as, as poor a kid as you as, as rough a neighborhood and as poor a home as I've ever been. And he had, he had one, a few advantages. He had a really great mother who'd worked at a school cafeteria for many years. And uh, and then and he had a really uh, a very strict and strong high school coach, a man named Charles Redmond, who died I think maybe two years ago. Um, and uh, so Johnny, but Johnny Melvin, you know, and he and he, and I, you know, it's a funny thing to say. Well, I'm so proud of him, but because he never got his degree, but he came from farther than anyone else, and he'd been in trouble in high school. He'd been arrested in high school, and we gave wound up giving him a chance. Or Don Haskins. Agreed to give him a chance, and he wound up never letting us down. He was always a great, great kid on a lot of different levels, and he, uh, you know, he was a fighter. And the other interesting thing about Johnny Melvin, you know, if we played uh, Northeast Louisiana or Texas Wesleyan, he was pretty useless. He didn't do much in the, in the but in the big games, whether it was Kansas, UCLA, Georgetown, uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, in, in the huge games, he always came up big. You know, like when we when we won at Georgetown, they hadn't lost a game there in something like four or five years. They hadn't lost a home game, and Johnny Melvin, at about six foot four and a half, out rebounded uh, Matumbo and Alonzo Mourning. Wow! You know these seven footers who wound up in the NBA for for a decade, and so Johnny was just he was just a fighter, and uh, and I think he really exemplified uh, the kind of Haskins mentality, like. Okay, I'm not the I'm not the greatest shooter in the world. I'm not the most skilled guy in the world, but uh, I'll never quit under any circumstances. And that was very much who Johnny Melvin was. And where was Johnny Melvin okay, from? So, well, he was a Chicago kid from okay. the, from Englewood, which is which has been sort of documented. Englewood is always picked as you know the roughest neighborhood in, in Chicago, which makes it you know as rough a neighborhood as is in America. With the Aggies, though, I'll, I'll, I'll change gears radically and and go with uh, Reverend Eric Channing, who's, you know, Eric oh, Channing yeah. was, uh, no, you know, number one in his high school class, had, had only gotten, I remember when he came, you know, his mother told me, well, he only got one B in his whole life. And I said, Miss Channing, I only got one B in my life, too, but I've gotten all Cs, you see. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, but Eric was, you know, he was a straight-A student, and if he didn't go to New Mexico State, he would have gone to uh, Wheaton College. Oh, wow. Which is where Billy Graham went, and and, and, and oddly, he is now the the campus the student pastor 
at Wheaton College. You know, it's a, a religious school, a wonderful, a wonderful place. And he's, uh, but Eric wound up uh, shattering the scoring record at, at New Mexico State on, on on really good teams. And he was a great, of course, a perfect fit for Lou Henson. Like they were the sort of a, a coaching and player marriage made in heaven. It was, it was really awesome watching uh, Eric Channing play. It, w- it really was during that time. Yeah, and he could, boy, and if he just got an inch of daylight, he could really shoot it. And Lou was, of course, a X and O genius that could get him, you know, get him shot after shot after shot. I don't think, I think uh, both ways, I don't think Johnny Melvin would have been nearly as good with Lou Henson. And I don't think Eric Channing would have been nearly as good with Don Haskins. Oh yeah, I, I I can never forget uh, Eric Channing the the shooting that he did. I, I remember him shooting from the corners. Um, I really I can just remember that shot very very clearly. And I got to ask you, um, was Charles Gosa one of your recruits? Yes, he was my first high school recruit when I when we signed when we signed Gosa. We hadn't signed a high school the Aggies hadn't signed a high school player in nine years. Wow! You can imagine that it was all junior college players. And it wasn't, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't any, it was my first year with the Aggies, and they'd been winning a lot with, with uh, junior college kids, but they'd gotten a little bit of trouble with the correspondence classes before I got there. And I, I was just thought, well, we've got to balance this out because if you're signing all junior college kids, they were, they were signing nine kids a year. And, four, you know, four or five of them would turn out, and they'd dump four or five of them and then go sign another nine. Now, I write about this at length in, in the, all the dreams we've dreamed. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but um, uh, I just thought it's not it's too much work to sign nine guys a year. You know, it's, it's really you know signing a kid takes hours and hours. Partly because you wind up going after kids. You you know you if you knew exactly who you could get, it would be an easy job. But you never know who you're going to get, and and so I wound up. Uh, I just decided this is too much work. If we can get get some of these high school kids. I won't have to sign nine guys a year. I'll, I'll be down to sort of the normal four or five guys a year. So we signed Charles Gosa, and he was pretty much unrecruited. He was way too skinny, and he wound up being the Big West uh, Big West Freshman of the Year, and and had, had a terrific career for the Aggies, and then played overseas for many years. Oh yeah, he uh, Charles Gosa. The thing that I remember most about him, he said he was very uh, very lanky, is the way I I see it, uh, but. Uh, back in that time, uh, I had barely started my college career, I guess you could call it, uh, there at New Mexico State, and I used to go to the the um, or the, the gym to go play a lot. And uh, Charles Gosa and all the you know all the basketball players they they tended to to find a way in there. And um, well, he was always playing there, and I remember I got to play against him a couple times and got dunked on once or twice. But uh, uh, yeah, it was really cool to eventually see him uh, uh, get out there and, and get that freshman of the year. Uh, conference award. He was he, he was a nice he was a nice person and he and uh, he was easy to coach and wonderful to be around. And the other interesting thing is his brother was Damian Gosa that had been a, a pretty good player for UTEP, not not as good as Charles, but Damian was sort of the uh, you, you know da- Damian was a completely different person. And I remember tra- thinking, well, we're going to get Charles Gosa because he said, let me just tell you something right from the start. I'm not my brother. Everyone always acts like I'm. Damien's little brother, and I don't want to be identified as Damien's brother. You know, there's, I think, sibling rivalry and that kind of thing. And so I thought, well, if you really want to rival your brother, come play for the Aggies. That's awesome. <laughs> because, you know, because, it, you know, because of the rivalry. 
and there, another random name I'm going to throw out there is because this guy was, uh, was ended up being a friend of mine, and I and I think I'm pretty positive he was from Chicago as well, and he didn't get to actually play. He was redshirting at the time, but his name was uh, Stefan Green. Uh, he was a forward, six foot ten, six foot yeah, nine. Yeah. No, no, he was a yeah, he was a big, strong guy. He was from uh, well, he'd gone to Northeast Oklahoma Junior College. And I think he was from. I remember, I think he was from Joplin, Missouri. Oh, okay. He was a nice kid. He, he I think, I think he wound up only playing for the Aggies for a year. He was a big, big, strong kind of a gentle giant and a, a good player and a nice kid. But I can't remember why. But he only lasted for a year. Well, I have, a, I have a good idea why, but uh, we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> um, but he, he well, was, you may know more than I do. Ed. Yeah, and like I said, we we got to be be very good friends. Him and there was another recruit that came in from Bo- uh, Boston, and I forget his name. It oh was, yeah, Dennis Dennis, Des- Dennis Desmond. There you go, Dennis Desmond. That's the guy. Yeah, and uh, we and I, they were they were they were they were big buddies. I think they were roommates. Yeah, they were roommates. Uh, like I said, I got to know them very well during my uh, younger age. Uh, well, you saw my tweet the other day, the before and after tweet. It was during those times of <laughs> of the before. Oh well, all right. Well, then, so, look. Well, we won't ask what what happened at, at what happened in Las Cruces stays in Las Cruces. There you go. Yes, you. sir. Yes, sir. But it was good times. I got to play a lot of basketball with those two guys as well, and uh, get into the activity center and and just you know play a lot of basketball. It was a lot of fun. You know how it is at that age. You uh, you you tend to play. In sports and, and hang out with your friends and and do the college experience. But um, speaking of the yeah, college yeah. experience, uh, you are still involved at, at a university, and that is at New Mexico State University. And uh, you are a um, are you is your, your official title? Are you a professor? I am a professor. I got promoted to full professor, which makes you think that the standards aren't very high in the at New Mexico State. But yes, I'm I'm a full I'm a full professor. I've been really lucky. You know, just like in coaching, you need a little bit of luck, uh, you know, where the things land in your, you know, just for whatever reason during, you know, for, it just helps to have luck on your side. And I had the good luck, of course, of working for Lou and, and Don Haskins, but there, a job never really fell into my lap. Well, this one sort of fell into my lap, you know, with the publication of my first book and uh, the administration, it caught the eye of the administration that my, remember my book about Ireland, about coaching and fiddling in Ireland, got quite a bit of attention, and it was with the University of New Mexico Press, and that led to me uh, being promoted pretty quickly. Um, so I've, I've been I've been very lucky, and I've seen it from both sides. Now I've seen, you know, I, one of the few people I would imagine in the country that started out as a coach and became an academic, and so it's given me a better understanding of of both sides and. Uh, and now I also, of course, I see the struggle that, you know, academics are always struggling for money. And, you know, every, everyone, I suppose, is. But I've seen sort of the, you know, the push-pull between athletics and academics. Was that an eye-opener for you? Because for, for us that have worked on the athletics side, um, I, I, sometimes I, I feel like uh, we like again on the athletic side get frustrated because we hear those complaints from the academic side was it was it an eye opener for you to to be on that side of it it, it was and it, and it continues to be but but part of, i think the the biggest thing is things move slower on the academic side like it has to go to committee and then you know you wind up and there's a you know and there's there's all you've got to go to the faculty senate for this or that and so there's a there's a, a longer process where i think because athletics is a different animal things move quickly so i'll give you an example of where it's really always surprised me it leaves me scratching my head 
if you know, we have. Uh, I'm just going to, as an example, I'll give Mike Jordan, our, our hugely successful volleyball coach. If his assistant coach leaves, he replaces the assistant coach. You know, pretty quickly within a month or six weeks or something, he's got a new assistant coach on board. But if we lose a professor to Hein, there's this whole process that you have to go through, and it, might, it could take years to replace. You know, uh, to re- to replace a professor. And so that's always that's always sort of perplexed me, like. Why is it that we can get an assistant baseball coach uh, quickly, but it takes years and years to get the approval? It's just the, the academic side of things moves much slower, and and uh, and there's there's not a sense of urgency. And I think in some ways, one of the big differences is we don't get compared. Our English department doesn't get compared compared to the Lobo English department. No one says, "Oh my God, the Lobos were better than you again in English." And so it's a different kind of it's a different kind of pressure where I think in athletics it's instantly measurable. You know, we beat the Lobos twice. You know, and so now suddenly, you know, suddenly we're better than the Lobos now. And of course that changes quickly. But in academics, things just move slower. And I just find that you know I find that perplexing. There's a lot of universities, though, Eddie. I will say that you know the Aggies still have things more or less in perspective. It's not crazy crazy million-dollar salaries and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I do think that, especially at the big schools, I saw that University of Iowa wound up having to fire their strength coach for some reason. He was making $800,000 a year. Wow. Now, now I'm all for my shoulders hurting me now. I needed uh, I needed John Taylor, our old strength coach, to yeah. coach me through what I was doing wrong with my shoulder. But it just seems crazy that a, that a strength coach is making $800,000 a year. But if your daughter goes to Iowa... She's going to get taught by you know by underpaid and underinsured student you know graduate assistants or adjuncts for most you know for most of uh, you know for the her, for, for, for her first couple of years and so um, I I've sort of uh, I find that sort of you know confusing like how how is it possible that we could that we could you know pay a strength coach and I know of course the Aggies are not University of Iowa our strength coach mm-hmm. doesn't make near that of course. But it just, it just seems like the educational system at times seems upside down to me. Um, you know, one of the things you'll hear in the – I read quite a bit about the state of education in America, and a big thing is, you know, is it, is it possible to be a conservative on a college campus anymore and those kinds of things. But I, what I find a lot more perplexing isn't the, isn't the squashing of the diversity of voices, but more it's more the uh, – you know how can you how can we ever move ahead? What kind of what's what's the message we're sending if the if the weightlifter the guy teaching you how to bench press well is making eight hundred thousand dollars a year? It just seems like a kind of crazy. Yeah, and and you know talking about your job that you got and you said it was a little bit of luck. It's a, uh, one of my favorite sayings that I use a lot is uh, it's better to be lucky than good, and uh, that luck has got me. Well, that's certainly in my case. <laughs> it's certainly really... in my case, and I think I I think I've turned out to be a little better writer than I was a coach. I mean. I, I loved coaching, and I think I was—I think I was decent, decent at it. But, but uh, I think in some ways I was better suited for the—you know—every assistant coach wishes they could be a head coach, and I think in some ways I was lucky not to be because, and you know, you know me well enough. I'm a little bit wired up. I'll tell you the most <laughs> amazing statistic about me is I coached college basketball for 14 years, and I had about six cups of coffee in 14 years. Wow! Like at, at that time, I was doing the whole thing without caffeine. So I think it's just genetic. I'm, you know, my dad's ninety six, and I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm wired up. I don't really need now. Now I drink either a cup of coffee or a cup of Irish tea, 
every morning, and then I'm completely wired out of my head. You know, <laughs> uh, but I think I think that's that's uh, you know, part of the, that's really the most the most interesting thing about my you know, career. I think is that I did the whole thing without caffeine. How did I do that? Yeah, that's a good question because I remember Genetics. when I was the football and uh, basketball contact over there in New Mexico State, I, w- I literally survived on caffeine. I was walking around with a pot of coffee all the time. So I, I give you credit yeah, there. It's just, it's, what got to me, when I was in Ireland, you couldn't go to anybody's house without them saying, you'll have a cup of tea. And if you start turning down cups of tea, you know, you're starting to say, oh, okay, I'll have just one cup. Just one. And so I'd wind up, I wind up, but then I wound up liking it and sort of finding that the... Uh, it helped me to sort of focus on my writing. And so that's what, that's the way I start. I know that's no great revelation to your listeners to, to hear that Russ starts his day with a cup of coffee. But the <laughs> interesting thing is I didn't do it until I was about 45 years old. You know, and you were talking about another thing about, you know, how, how um, people don't really recognize the academic side of things. And that, you know, uh, because people see the, the sports side of, of schools as that's the front door to your university. That's the window to your university. That's where you see, you know, about the university. You, if you go out and ask, you know, the average Joe, uh, if I bet you, if you go and ask 50 people, 49 people will not get the answer. Correct. If you ask them, what is Alabama known for? And of course they'll say football, but academically, I, I don't even really know. I know what well, so, Yeah, there's a big distance. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of how distant it can be. As I remember Coach Haskins telling us when I was coaching there for a couple of years, says, it doesn't matter where you get your degree from in life. It just matters if you get the degree. And I said, Coach, that may be true in coaching. It's probably true in coaching. But it's not true in, you know, like you're much better off. I mean, just the world is dominated by guys who went to the, you know, especially white men, of course. But people went to the Ivy League, dominate the world, and people went to Wesleyan and Colgate. And I, you know, Coach Haskins wound up getting his degree from West Texas State a couple years after he left Oklahoma State. He completed his degree while he was already teaching and coaching. But I, I you know, my experience that to me that indicated, you know, just it's just a very different world. You don't you don't think about graduate school or or the quality of you know the you know the quality of education. When you're coaching, you just want the kids to get a degree. Fair enough. You, you know, you're you don't have a, a worldwide view. But even the same thing happened when I was with Neil McCarthy. There was a kid named David Mosley here in Las Cruces. He was a really great player, a great shooter. I don't think he ever quite made the NBA, but boy, he was close, and he could really shoot. And his choices, you know, he wound up choosing between Stanford and New Mexico State, where he had a few other choices too. I think. But I remember Neil McCarthy saying, "Well, why would a guy rather go to Stanford?" You know, we get more fans. Why would a guy rather go to Stanford than New Mexico State? And I thought, well, we're lost here if we don't. You know, Stanford is recognized as one of the, you know, probably the best, uh, probably the other than maybe Michigan, maybe the best uh, university in America that's uh, school-wise and sports-wise. You know, they've got great sports and and great, uh, you know, great academics. And a degree from Stanford just means a lot. Now, I hope David Mosley got his degree. I actually don't know. I, I think he did. But it just it just seems like an odd uh, statement to make by both of those guys that that, uh, that, that uh, you know the quality of the degree didn't didn't seem to uh, and I did again it's not they weren't they were they weren't it wasn't it's not a critical judgment of them so much as just how different how far away academics can be from anyone in academia would tell you a degree from Stanford is worth a lot more mm-hmm. than you know than a UTEP degree or a New Mexico State degree. 
So before we go on to your writing, I, I really want to get to that. Um, can you just tell us one uh, memory of the college basketball realm that you haven't already talked about um, that really sticks out that, that would just catch the listener by surprise? Jeez, <laughs> uh, you mean uh, on the court or off the court? or uh, e- Either or. I mean, uh, because I, I know a lot of people like to hear the behind-the-scenes stuff, too. So, I mean, either or. I, it doesn't matter if it was on the court, if it, maybe it was a, a bus ride and somebody, you know, got a, got an all A's in their class for the first time and they started crying on the bus. Who knows what it is? I mean, um, whatever it may be for you. Um. Well, I, I will say I will say this about working for Don Haskins. What surprised me the most about working for him was something that I realized after a year. You know, I, I was 22 or 23, I guess, when I started working for him. And, of course, you know, I was eager to learn, and I knew that he was a li- already a living legend, although he's younger. He was younger then than I am now by about five or six years. But I remember thinking, I'm, I'm going to bring a notebook to work, and whenever, you know, Coach Haskins isn't looking and he, you know, when I get back to my office after meetings or whatever, I'm going to write down everything I learned from him. And I didn't write anything down after a year because much of what uh, Don Haskins taught, I already knew. But here, the difference was that he really, he was incredibly stubborn and there was, and it was, he simplified things. There was never a time in a UTEP timeout where a player would say, wait a minute, coach, I don't understand what you mean. Start again. Like he kept things simple for the guys, and what I think what that did was freed them up to just not to overthink things, but just go play hard and to play with, you know, play with great gusto and aggressiveness. And I think that that uh, that that, uh, that the simplicity really, you know, really helped him to do that. I, I, the other story I found really amazing was, you know, before I before I started working for Lou, I didn't know him very well. I just knew that Coach Haskins would get very fidgety when you mentioned Lou Henson, even though he was at Illinois at that time. And Ellenberger the same way. They'd sort of grumble about Lou, and, but never specifically. Just sort of, you know, they was just sort of grumble, you know, especially Don Haskins, he would grumble and growl. And I didn't understand it. You know, Lou seemed like such a, I didn't know him well, but he seemed like a nice person. Well, then, and Lou never talked about this. This is just through my own research I discovered. Now, maybe someone else, had, I'm sure other people knew, but Lou certainly never talked about it. But um, but Lou Henson got to New Mexico State a few months after Don Haskins won it all. So here's the national champions a half hour away. And the Aggies were terrible. And Lou beat Don Haskins in 67 when they played, both times they played. Once, I guess it was at Las Cruces High School because they, that was where they were playing that year. But So, okay, fair enough. So he upset Haskins twice. Well, he beat him eight more times in a row. So ten times in a row... Lou Henson beat Don Haskins. And this was in the late 60s and early 70s when Don, Don had powerhouse teams. You know, there was Nate Archibald. I mean, think about it. Nate Archibald was 0-6 against the Aggies. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And so uh, and so, I, I didn't quite understand why Haskins would grumble about Lou. And, and I didn't understand why Lou, you know, when I got to New Mexico State, people still talked about Lou, even though he wasn't coaching here yet. And I think it had to do, I think there was a certain mystique that Lou Henson had it really surprised me to learn that, you know, by beating Don Haskins 10 times in a row, he sort of cemented his status as, you know, Aggie fans are funny. Like if we're two and 20, if we're four and 26, but we beat UTEP twice and beat the Lobos twice, 
well, okay, we can live. It's a good season. (laughs) Whereas whereas I remember, you know, I remember being so impressed by Marvin Menzies. You know, he'd be twenty-five and six, but he'd lost the UTEP twice and lost to the Lobos once or whatever. Like people were angry at Marvin all Mm -hmm. the time, even though he'd made the NCAA tournament, won the league, had a great year, nice kid, but he didn't beat the Lobos twice. You know, and and whereas, so I think that really cemented Lou's mystique is that he really had Don Haskins' number in a way that no one else ever had uh, before or since. And I think that really stuck with, you know, Don, of course, Don was very competitive, too. Lou is incredi- just as competitive as Don, but you wouldn't know it. He, Lou sort of would, always reminded me of George Foreman. You remember George Foreman, oh, yeah. the heavyweight fighter? Oh, yeah. Like, he'd, he'd try and knock your head off, and then afterwards he was all smiles, you know, <laughs> and, uh, wave, waving at everybody and hugging everybody. And I thought, my God, how can he turn it on and off like that? Well, I'm sure you had a wonderful time working for Lou, working for Don. Uh, you know, I, I I got you know the chance to uh, hang out with Lou a couple of times, and actually, I was there with him when he got um, called up for the College Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, oh, nice! And I was there, uh, got to do the press stuff with him, um, and he was just so the easiest coach I have ever worked for. You know, in a moment or whatever, but he made it so easy. Uh, he and his wife made it even easier. Um, she knew yeah. she knew the ins and outs of his career, and it was funny. You know, she was like an SID. She was like a sports information director. As he was taking the phone calls and the interviews, she would sit right next to him and hand him the notes of make sure you mention this, make sure you mention that, and, and you know, she was all over it. And again, great, great person. If you uh, you know anybody who got to know Lou Hansen, well, you know you know how amazing he was. Anybody who got to know Don Haskins, you know how great he. He was and it's so awesome uh russ that you got to spend that time uh with both those amazing coaches yeah and one of the differences with eddie was that uh i agree with you they both have great they're both married to a woman named mary yes and they both had really great great women behind them that were you know completely well brilliant ladies both of them but completely willing to be in the background and sort of but with both of them the funny thing was you could never no one could boss Don Haskins around. No one could tell Lou Henson what to do except their wives. They both had, you know, their wives both had their ear. Oh, and, yeah. and, uh, and so if it, I think if either of them ever got a lot out of line, Don was probably more likely to get out of line. But if, if either of them got out of line, you know, you could just, you know, it was, it was, it was married to the rescue. Oh yeah. Yep. And, um, so let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about, uh, writing. Uh, you were talking, you know, you you teach creative writing, I believe over at New Mexico state. And, um, you know, as a, as a PR person, uh, somebody who graduated uh, out of the journalism department over at New Mexico state, I, I know how important writing is. And I am starting, I have started to believe, but I'm trying to convince the younger people, uh, to practice writing. Because I believe it's starting to become a lost skill, a lost art. Um, I don't know where you. I, I think. Where I you... think it, well, we talk about it all the time, Eddie. And one of the things, or Andy or Eddie, but but uh, but one of the we always grew. Whether you're a historian or a journalist or a lawyer or a salesman, you know, it's controlling the narrative and telling the story. Like when I, you know, when I recruit. If when I recruited Tim Hardaway, you know, the narrative was, look, you're not really going to grow up until you leave home. You know, he had a chance to go to Chicago State. 
you know, you're not really going to grow up with it. You know, then other kids, when I was recruiting, you know, Mark McCall, the great player for the, the great leaper for the, you know, for the Aggies, uh, yeah, it was, more, it was like, look, your mom's never going to get to see you play. If you, don't. you know, we're, we're, we're always telling stories, whether, whether a lawyer or a salesman or, uh, uh, and I think storytelling, we're wired for stories. If I ask you, Eddie, to tell me about yourself, you don't say I'm 86% H2O with a type A blood type. Those are all, that's all true. And you know, scientifically that's true, but you say, well, I grew up here and my mom and dad met there and, you know, I went to this school, you know, like you tell your story and I think we're wired for stories. And so I think there's a huge advantage. You know, there's a, there's a new idea going around the country that the MFA or the fine arts writing degree is the new MBA that you, that by being able to tell a story that, you know, like here's a story with a beginning, middle and end. And we've all seen that where you're sitting next to some guy that you, you know, at Thanksgiving or at the Super Bowl party or whatever. And this guy starts telling you a story and you think this guy cannot tell a story. Like, like I'm so bored listening to this guy. What is he talking about? Like get to the point there, buddy. Well, that's as, you know, as storytellers, that's precisely what we do is, you know, we're trying to we're trying to think how is it that I can best tell this story, uh, and so I, I think it's an incredibly valuable degree, and you know, not all all of our students, of course, go on to be novelists or short story writers or poets, but they're able to take it, you know, whether whether it's technical writing or magazine writing or editing or working for a publisher, uh, but also I, I think uh, you know we have a student now who's going to go on to law school, and that idea of being able to tell your stories at the heart of what we're doing as, as writers. Oh yeah. And it's a skill that, um, uh, well, me in particular, I, I continue to work on, um, I, I, I trying to build my confidence in my writing. Uh, but again, it's, it's something that needs to be practiced just like basketball. You need to practice it just like football. You need to practice, uh, your writing skills. And again, uh, I get so, at times disappointed uh, to see that our younger people are, are losing that skill. But again, with people like, like you, Russ, and, and, and myself, if we can continue to encourage them, practice your writing uh, starting young at a young age. And uh, hopefully, you you know, these young people can come up and, and write books just like you have. And, and uh, you know, to mention the books that you, you've written, you've already talked uh, touched on one of them was your memoir about when you went to Ireland called Patty on the Hardwood. You've also wrote a book, um, uh, about a coach uh, who is a, a local, uh, Nolan Richardson. It's called 40 Minutes of Hell, The Extraordinary Life of Nolan Richardson, um, who, by the way, Andy uh, Ace is, uh, Nolan was a, a Sumble Parade Grand Marshal in the past, so little tidbit there. My, my grandpa went to school with him. Oh, with Nolan Richardson. Oh, cool. <laughs> wow, wow, small world. And then the the um, the other book that I really want to uh, talk about is All the Dreams We've Dreamed. Again, it's a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's west side. Uh, but, you know, can you touch uh, just briefly on the other two, the patty on the hardwood and the uh, 40 Minutes of Hell, The Extraordinary Life of Nolan Richardson before we move on, Russ? Well, with, with, the, with the Irish basketball book, I just, started keeping a diary because it's such a weird place to coach you know with the, with the wooden backboards and the ceramic tile floor and so i just and then trying to learn the fiddle and i just sort of so the book sort of uh, um, writes about my attempt to teach the american tradition of basketball while trying to learn the irish tradition of you know irish fiddling and it really helped me as a coach because i you know i think it was good for me to be a rank beginner at it or nearly a beginner because I think it, it sort of opened my head is well, this is what my guys are going through. They're they're 
having trouble, you know, having trouble uh, grasping this because it's new to them, just like the music was new to me. So that, so that was Patty on the Hardwood. And, and the Nolan Richardson book, of course, is a very different book. And originally I started writing the Nolan Richardson book. You know, he had, when he got fired, he was making a million dollars a year or whatever he was making, but talked about racism a lot. And I thought, come on, man, like, how can you talk about racism? You're making a million dollars a year. So originally the book was, going, you know, thinking, well, this will sort of expose Nolan as, you know, as, you know, crying wolf, you know, for, you know, for, but the more, the, the more I worked on it, the more research I did, and the more people I talked to, the more I came to think, you know, he's right about just about everything here. And it, and so the book, you know, the book took a turn for me while I was writing it is that I think, and I think that's part of the reason why the book has done well is that people were trying to understand, you know, just like, uh, I was trying to understand Nolan Richardson, you know, the readers were trying, you know, fans were trying to think, well, what, why did he melt down like that? Well, and I think it's true if you wind up at a, hear somebody at the end of the argument, it's hard to make a judgment as to what happened before you got there. Um, and I think that's so, uh, but with Nolan, I was just trying to you know, understand, uh, and it was such an interesting life. He grew up as a Spanish speaker, um, you know, in Segundo Barrio, and, you know, he went to the Armijo, you know, he only got to swim on Juneteenth, and they drained the pool after the black kids got in. This is all going on in El Paso. Wow. And then also the dramatic, you know, to me, my favorite part of the story, I didn't know about until my friend Tom Spiesney told me about uh, how Burt Williams had uh, written the anti-Jim Crow laws after he got denied service at a restaurant with Nolan Richardson. And so El Paso became the first major city in the South to uh, in the old Confederacy to end their Jim Crow laws, and it was because Nolan didn't get served at, at at, at dinner one day, and I, and I remember, you know, it's one of the reasons why people can't write their own book is that uh, wow. when I when I heard about that story, I asked Nolan about the book was about ready to go into publication. I was like, hold the presses, we I've got an important thing to add to the story, and wound up meeting Burt Williams and interviewing Burt Williams. I don't know if you guys ever met Burt Williams, but he, you know, he wound up becoming mayor of El Paso. But he single handedly went home that night, wrote the anti Jim Crow laws, and the mayor vetoed it. It's Fred Hervey, I think, and but they they had enough votes to uh, override the veto in, in the city council. And Bert all never would never take credit for it. He always he would say, he would say, "Oh, yeah, the mayor really helped a lot," which of course was not quite true. The mayor actually tried to block it, but but Bert was so low ego that he. I mean, he should. We've got a bus station named after him, but I, I think that's hardly enough for the way he changed the world and changed El Paso. And here's the, the, the most important part of that story is that when Bert, did, you know, Don Haskins was recruiting Jim Bad News Barnes at that time, and Bad News Barnes told him, "Look, I'm not going to I'm not going to any college where I can't go to the movies, and uh, you know, sit with everybody else." And uh, Don was able to say to him, "You know, well, you can sit at the you can go to the movies here." And he wound up coming to visit and having a great time. And but part of that was because Nolan and Bert Williams had had ended the. Uh, had ended the Jim Crow laws. So, so to me, and of course, Nolan was just, just happened to be there. So, so to me, you know, with with the the, the times that we're currently in, uh, especially in the United States, um, I truly believe that that's a great book for everyone to go out and get the four, 40 minutes of hell, the extraordinary life of Nolan Richardson. You can find it on Amazon, and I really believe you'll get a great lesson uh, of our country and 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 history there especially with that knowledge because just for i didn't know i didn't know that story at all and, and you're in el paso and, and exactly and f- for those that are listening and other people that's a 
great piece of history that we we don't realize it, happened it's here. Really, it's, it's really it's really remarkable. And the problem, you know, the problem, of course, is Bert's modesty. Had Bert been, uh, you know, had Bert been, you know, had Bert been different, he would have been beating his own drum and saying, "I did this, and I'm the one who," and he was the one who did it. But he refused to take credit for it. I just think he thought it was a bigger issue than himself. And that Bert hadn't been suffering under you know, under Jim Crow laws, so it wasn't anything really for him to celebrate about his own life. Uh, although Bert had grown up in Segundo Barrio as well, the, the, his mother was a single. In fact, the, you know the kids they called him Pajaro, you know Spanish for bird, mm-hmm. because they thought every, that his mother was calling him Bert Bird <laughs> and not Bert. So he was Pajaro in in, in uh, you know in in, uh, in Segundo Barrio to everybody for 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 many many years. And if you met Bert Williams, and I was lucky, he lives just a couple doors down from Steve Yellen. And so whenever we did the basketball in the barrio, the coaches would make this pilgrimage after I heard the stories. I mean, he'd been there for years. I lived four doors down from him and never knew never knew the story. And the, and the funny thing, and I think the amazing part is that opened up the door for Don Haskins to really, really go after the best players because we weren't a Jim Crow town anymore. And so I believe that Bert Williams should have got a championship ring. And and that, that and I've said this for 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 years now is that if it wasn't for Burt Williams, there would be no 1966 because it was through it, Jim Barnes was the first one, and Jim Barnes led to Orson Artis, and Orson Artis led to David Latin, and those kinds of things. And it was only through uh, j- breaking through with Jim Barnes in a town that you know, he could go watch the movies that uh, that allowed uh, you know allowed Don to really open up his recruiting and just go after the best players regardless of color. Again. Wow. You can get that book on Amazon, uh, 40 Minutes in Hell, uh, The Extraordinary Life of Nolan Richardson by Mr. Russ Bradbury. And uh, the other book I really want to touch on, because this one um, really hit me in the heart, uh, Russ, when I read it. And um, it really ignited something inside me to talk about um, gun violence and in particular in Chicago and, and I just don't understand it. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't get what, what's really going on over there and why it's going on and, and how to help it, how to, you know, whatever to, to overcome that, that situation over in Chicago as many, many people, uh, continue to, to, to die and, and pass away due to, to the gun violence going on over there. But th- that's the book I want to talk about a little bit more is the, all, all the dreams we've dreamed, a story of hoops and handguns on the Chicago's West side. And I'm going to read a little expert that's here on the, on the cover, uh, by former U S secretary of education, uh, Arnie Duncan, who said, Quote, two decades after the film Hoop Dreams, the stories unfolding at Marshall High School are more important than ever. Anyone interested in courage, stamina, education, race, health care, guns, or American society will find all the dreams we've dreamed a riveting read. Sean Harrington is an American hero, and his story needs to be heard and i agree 100 percent with that uh as i've met sean harrington and and i've seen some you know his interviews i've seen videos and um you know read this book and uh the the story which i'm hoping you could touch on a little bit russ without giving away the whole story um but just you know touch on it and, and talk about sean harrington a little bit and and where we can you know help his cause well yeah some of your listeners would know that sean was played for the Aggies for a year, uh, and then wound up blowing out his knee. And, 
and then we wound up not renewing his scholarship, which is not unusual. You know, usually there's plenty of players each year who don't get their scholarship renewed. But what was different was what a wonderful person Sean Harrington was as a young man, but also that, you know, he was our best player. And I think had we, you know, we he wound up transferring to Division II school and being a Division II All-American. I mean, clearly his knee healed. But that story had always sort of stuck with me. I, I, I sort of buried it away and didn't think about it really. I got out of coaching and kept saying, well, that was in 96, I guess, that happened. Well, in 2014, nearly 20 years later, he was driving his daughter to school in a rental car. So it wasn't in his usual car. Just in sort of, he has a very distinct looking, uh, it's an old SUV, but it's, it had this weird, he used to have this weird paint job where it was very obviously, you know, you wouldn't mistake his car for anybody else's. But now he was in a, a white rental car because that one was in the shop. And it's 7.30 in the morning. These guys ran up to his car and pointed and opened fire on him. Obviously, you know, a case of mistaken identity. But when the, when the first bullet shattered the glass, he dove on top of his daughter, who was just a sophomore in high school at the time, and pushed her down. And the next bullet went through her headrest. And, 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 and then, of course, you know, 10, 10 shots, and a couple of them hit Sean, one right in the spine. And so he'll, he's never, you know, he'll never be able to walk again. He, he, from that time on, he was confined to a, a wheelchair, but he saved his daughter's life. And there was something about that story. You know, for, year, for years, Eddie, I knew, okay, Nolan Richardson's daughter died of leukemia. She was 14. Okay, now i got to go on to this next chapter. Like, I knew that, I knew that Nolan's daughter had died. Uh, yeah, uh, but it wasn't until my daughter was born, a little bit uh, right around the time uh, my daughter was maybe two when I started working on the Nolan Richardson book, I think, and um, it, it really, really hit home to me when by having my own daughter, it just made me more empathetic. I don't know if this has happened to you guys, but like if I'd be at the playground and she fell, I got this jerking sort of pain in my gut. Oh yeah, I jump up, you know, and and then it started happening to me. It still does to me is if I see any kid fall. It's ruined me being a father in many ways, <laughs> but uh, but it, but I, if I see any kid fall now, I get uh, this pang in my gut, thinking, "Oh my God, is that kid okay?" Mm-hmm. And it, that really opened up my head with with Nolan losing Yvonne at fourteen to leukemia. Well, the part of Sean's story that really hit home for me is I have a daughter that's about to hit the age of his younger daughter, and I thought, you know, it was just such a remarkable story of courage. And then pretty quickly he lost his job and his insurance ended, and I just thought. It just made me crazy. Like, how can this be in America that this guy reacted like Rambo? You know, like now Sean would say. Sean always says, "Oh, I did what any father would do, as if every father is trained in the martial arts and uh, is a green beret or Navy SEAL and knows how to react when the bullets start flying." I mean, he acted like a war hero at seven thirty in the morning. And I also thought, if it's happening at seven thirty in the morning, it used to be you could say to a guy. You know, if one of the if one of the miners got in trouble, well, what do you? You shouldn't be you shouldn't be out at the disco at, at midnight. You know, don't you know we got we got a game we got we got you know we got a game in, in six days. You know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But but uh, in this case, what are you going to say? You shouldn't be out driving your daughter to work. You know, you should know better than. And I thought if if if, if we're not safe driving our kids to school, then then none of us are safe. And the, the, so I started uh, trying to publicize the story by. You know, getting a hold of my writer, people I knew who were writers in the media. And finally, you know, there was a few stories about Sean, and that helped his defray his medical expenses. But then a, a writer named Alex Kotlowitz said to me, uh, you should write this story yourself. And I think it was sort of something that, uh, it was like when I went in, I remember in Ireland going to get my uh, 
my, my wife was coming to visit, and I went to get her a necklace, you know, for a Christmas present. And the lady at the jewelry store said, why don't you just get her the ring? And I said, well, how did she know that? You know, like, mm-hmm. I wound up, I did wind up, you know, marrying Connie and, and, and proposing to her. I didn't, I didn't buy the ring. That, <laughs> that ring, because I wanted her to have a, have a choice in it. But, but that, that idea of, you know, why, I, just, I, just, I think that when Alec Cotwood said, why don't you write it yourself, I knew that I should be writing it myself, but I just hadn't quite taken that emotional leap yet the same way I didn't when somebody told me, why don't you just get Connie, the lady who I'd never met said, why don't you just get Connie a ring? So, um, Sean Harrington, again, like you, you, you mentioned, got um, a bullet hit him in the, in the spine, which paralyzed him. And uh, again, now now you're uh, putting an effort to help raise money uh, for Mr. Sean Harrington so that he can, uh, you know, live um, I don't know what word to, to use as more comfortable or, or you know, more efficient. Um, but you're about... Well, with, di- with, dig- with, dig- with dignity, I would say. There you go. Uh, so you're about yeah. 75% towards your goal. Where can people, if they want to donate, where can people donate to? Well, first, uh, let me let me say, uh, guys, what we're, what we're trying to do, and we're close, we're, he's been living with his, with his aunt, for, since the shooting, uh, and it, because where he was living before was off, the, off on the second floor and he couldn't get up and down, what, where he's living with his aunt now, there's two stairs. So it's a little easier to get him up and down, but somebody has to be there to do it. So there's a lot of days because his aunt works two jobs, and it's an 800-square-foot apartment where he's living. And because because of that, uh, his, uh, he, he can't get in and out of his apartment on his own. So there's times when he'll go a week without leave or more. And during the, you talk about, you know, I know how lockdown has made me crazy. Yeah. Well, imagine being locked down for about six years. Yeah, that's, and in a wheelchair. And so we, we, then we heard that the apartment across the hall from Aunt Jackie's came open. And it's the only apartment in the building that's wheelchair accessible. It opens right out onto the sidewalk. So he could finally get in and out on his own. Now you try and find a, a, a a wheelchair accessible condo in Chicago and they are astronomical mm-hmm. you know, because it usually means an elevator, you know, and covered parking and that kind of thing. But in this case, because of the design of the apartment, I think it's, I think it's where the building superintendent used to live. It just opens the door opens right out onto the sidewalk. And so he can get out in and out on his own for the first time. So we've made a big down payment on it, uh, but we're, we're about, we're a little more than three quarters of the way there. Uh, and so if people want to help, it'd be great. If you just, if you Google, it's a GoFundMe, if you Google Sean Harrington, but the key, Eddie, as you know, is spelling Sean, S-H-A-W-N, mm-hmm. uh, Sean Harrington, a lady named Susan Cochran and I have started this fundraiser. And you know, we started the fundraiser, uh, and two days later, poor Kobe Bryant, his helicopter goes down. So oh, wow. suddenly that, and then, you know, then the virus came up and, mm-hmm. and, and not, not just the virus stole the news, but people were losing their jobs. And so we've done this, we've raised about three, it's only, it's $120,000 for the condo, which is, you know, pretty, really cheap. And we've got a great deal on it in Chicago. And, but to get it, yeah, again, to get a wheelchair accessible apartment in Chicago is really, really expensive. And here we've got one in our hands. We've just got to sort of close the deal now. So, Russ, where is the best place? Is it Amazon to get uh, to look up these books uh, that that people uh, would want to read, or do you have a website? Well, I would. Well, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't say you know you guys didn't talk about my book of fiction. It's called Make It Take It, 
And that was that was published by El Paso Cinco Puntos Press, you know, the small award winning press it's at seven oh one Texas. And so people can go get the go get the books go get the the, the books there at, at seven oh one Texas, just walk right in, put your mask on. Um and but then there's also the you know the uh, the Messiah Bookshop has been a big supporter of mine. If you're if you're in Las Cruces, the Messiah Bookshop is right on the plaza. Okay. And the late you know anyone in there would know. Uh, you know, actually one of my students is one of the main one of the main clerks there. So you could just go in and ask for, and, and they would have my books. And it's it's at most bookstores. I I don't know if literary uh, literary carries it or not. Um, but Barnes and Noble used to carry them. Of course, they're available online. Just to a Google search. I know as a writer, we're supposed to be encouraging people to go to the bookstores, but some people aren't comfortable doing that. But I know that I'm certain that, uh, I'm certain that the Messiah bookshop has it right on the plaza. Yeah. So you said Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, borders and IndieBound, correct? And, uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I think all of those, would, I think all of those would, 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 uh, would carry, but really it, uh, it, it, it's just by Googling GoFundMe, Sean Harrington, uh, you could, you could, you could help. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has happened is we're so divided on race. And the, gun, the gun issue is divisive, and it's a hot button topic in El Paso. But anybody on either side of the debate, I've gotten two nice letters from NRA guys of all things that, that wow. think Sean Harrington is an American hero and that kind of thing. Like I'd have my own complicated views of guns. Although Eddie, I'm like you is. I worked on this book for three and a half years, and I have no idea what the problem is. Yeah. Although when I started writing, I knew I knew all the answers. Strangely. Well, like I said, when I read it the first time, it really ignited something. And I read it a second time, then I met Sean, and it was it just within within me there was a burning desire to help in some way, whether it's to voice it, whether it's to donate ten dollars, whether whatever it may be, uh, to do something uh, because it, it really really touched me again. I, I encourage everybody to read that book, All the Dreams We've Dreamed, uh, a story of hoops and handguns on Chicago's West Side. Uh, it's an extremely powerful it's, book. It's a funny thing, Eddie. It sounds too, it's weird to say or terrible to say, but you know what happened to Sean? Has really, you know, Sean's struggles, as horrible as what happened to him, is has really inspired a lot of people, and it really, really made me rethink my life. You know, like I can walk outside and have a have a nice tea, or you know, I can I can I can walk my daughter to school. Like suddenly, he can't do any of the things that I totally took for granted. You know, and when I was writing the book, I almost I did wound up not doing it because I thought it might send, but I almost went and got a wheelchair myself. I thought. You spend the day in the wheelchair and not get out of it and see how that feels. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, like, you know, you guys know me well enough. Like, I have trouble sitting still for, for 10 minutes. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so it just seemed like, a, uh, I, I think one of the, the, the shooting of Sean Harrington, the town, has been a lot, of, you know, a lot, a lot of people. And it's, it's not just the way he reacted when he saved his daughter, but just the endurance he's had in trying to get his life back together. One last thing I really want to uh, just touch on real briefly is um, your uh, you're you're also a broadcaster, an analyst uh, for college basketball now. For um, in particular, I guess it would be Aggie Vision, and you uh, sit there with Adam Young, and um, you know I don't really get to watch the broadcast uh, live because I'm sitting at the scorers table doing stats. So I'm just 
directly across from you where you are at, Russ. And uh, but last year, what an exciting season for the, the Mexico State Aggies, and in particular, there was a game uh, you got to call with Adam Young, um, I, and I think it was against uh, Cal Baptist, and there was a series of plays towards in the second half where the Aggies um, had some electrifying dunks. And in, in that sequence, um, there was a, a player who, who got an alley-oop. He, he got an alley-oop, and when he dunked it, right after he came onto the ground, he turns to the crowd, and he throws his headband into the crowd. And I'll never forget you saying, oh, my gosh, it's, everybody's excited. <laughs> and he throws his headband into the crowd. And, I mean, talk about those types of things. How fun is that to work with a, uh, with a professional like Adam Young, too? Well, yeah, Adam, I mean, Adam Young, it's, it's like surfing with him. Like, I just get up on the wave, and my job is easy because he's so good. He's very good. And, uh, but I, I, the, the odd thing about it, Eddie, is the first time I did it, maybe whatever it was, 10 or 12 years ago, I went home because they were doing delayed telecast. At that time, I went home and said, okay, let me get my notebook out and try and I'll write down the things i got to improve on. I could not listen to myself because I thought, geez, I sound like a, a TV announcer. I'm sounding like I'm trying to be a TV announcer. And I just made up my mind uh, that day that I would never again try to be an announcer. Now I just talk like I am friends with Adam Young. I count him as a good friend. But I, we've gotten to be friends you know, over the years. And now I just try to think of it as I'm just going to sit here like I'm talking with a buddy and talk about the game and not – not try to sound, you know, use the right catch words or, and so there's a, uh, and, you know, I try to be self-deprecating, like, do I really know more than the average fan? Maybe a little bit, but I'm no expert, and certainly coaches might disagree with me, uh, you know, about what I'm saying, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, that Chris Jans or Paul Weir or Marvin Menzies agreed with everything I said, but I just try, you know, I just talk off the top of my head, and I, I'm, I'm, I tried to be prepared by knowing the opposition, but I've, I gave up the idea of sounding like an announcer. I just I just thought, that's not working for me. I just got to talk like myself. Well, I, I know it was a, definitely a fun year uh, for you uh, calling those Aggie games. They, they had a lot of success. And uh, uh, thank you, Russ, uh, for coming on with us. Ace, you got anything for Russ before we let him go? No, we're good. Uh, everybody make sure you go and uh, check out those books, um, purchase, support the cause, and and get back to reading and writing, like you, like you were saying earlier. There you go. Now you're you know, talking. It's it's everything's so. I mean, I guess we're lazy now in this generation. Well, maybe not lazy, but talks to you know you can talk to your phone and it writes for you. And everybody's using the the slang words or you know BRB for be right back. You know, it, it's don't don't <laughs> lo- don't lose don't lose uh you know the writing skills because then we're gonna start talking like that. <laughs> Exactly. Most and I do, I do think it's one of the things we, we, we try to teach in, in the MFA program is the idea of sustained attention. Like if you're going to make a guitar or get to be a great three-point shooter or be a good writer, you can't. it's not like going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. It's going to take you years and years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So once again, uh, Russ Bradbird with us, uh, author, former assistant coach, uh, broadcaster, a musician, plays the fiddle, correct? It's, it's the fiddle that you play? I'm a fiddle player. That's true. <laughs> and uh, do you uh, do any shows? Well, I, I generally when the when when the virus is not around, I play at the Spotted Dog every 
uh, Sunday from two to four with my music, uh, my music partner of many years, Dennis Daly. We play as a duo at the Spotted Dog from two to four. So on Sundays when the virus clears up, we'll be back. Awesome. Awesome. Russ, once again, thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure just chatting with you. Anytime I get a chance to run into you, it's always a great thing. And uh, keep up the great work. I'm going to keep on sharing your stuff. And I, I really appreciate all you've done. Thanks a million, Eddie. And thanks for your support for Sean Harrington. Of course. Of course. We're going we're gonna to get there uh, to reach that goal together. Yep. Bye. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Sports and More podcast with Eddie Morelos and producer Ace Acosta. And that was Mr. Russ Bradbird. Uh, again, he was a former assistant coach. Uh, he was also he also is a broadcaster. He does a lot of games with AggieVision. Great guy. Great guy. Oh, dude, he's a wonderful guy. So everybody can go to RussBradbird.com to see all his books and the links to everything. Again, the, the main book that I really want to promote uh, for him is the All the Dreams We've Dreamed, A Story of Hoops and Handguns on Chicago's west side story and just a little uh, another little expert it says uh sean harrington again he was a former new mexico state uh, basketball player sean harrington returned to marshall high school as an assistant coach years after appearing as a player in the iconic basketball documentary hoop dreams so again he was in hoop dreams uh in january of 2014 marshall's struggling team was about to improve after the addition of a charismatic but troubled player everything changed however when two young men opened fire on harrington's car as he drove his daughter to school using his body to shield her harrington was struck and paralyzed and again uh that's why um russ is raising money to help him because uh, he's paralyzed and he needs uh, help to get the tools, uh, the proper tools, so that he can live life uh, with dignity, as Russ put it. Uh, you know, and, and I, I wanted to, you know, looking for the right word, and that's to me the right word is to, you know, we all live with some dignity, and that's what we want as as human beings. Any any amount any amount helps. I mean, the pennies make dollars. Oh yeah, so. little by little. It's like I said, you know, I wanted to do something, and you know, I I bought the book. I've I've met Sean. I've talked to Sean Harrington. I always share uh, whenever Russ. Uh, put something out about him i will share it uh, i've made a small donation like i said 10 bucks anything helps i mean that's all i could afford, afford at that at that time that's and who a, knows maybe today I'm, I'm i'm gonna probably go donate another 10 bucks today ace uh because again it reignites that that passion and i you know it's like you know russ said he doesn't know the answer to what's going on in chicago i don't know uh you know it's it's crazy it's crazy though. i think going back to to that tad bit of history with nolan richardson and the anti-jim crow laws that that's uh had no idea and how how cool is that again you know nolan richardson to connect the dots uh he's from el paso uh he's a college basketball coach uh for the university of arkansas and then uh you know does these types of things to to help Mm -hmm. history history I mean, again, think about the things that are going on right now in our country with uh, the division and, and and the politics of it all. And we go back and this is where, you know, you'll learn more about how it's, you know, evolving. Exactly. You know? And uh, again, so I'm going to go and buy that book because I hadn't read that book. So, uh, Russ, 
when you hear this, I'm sorry, but I am buying it now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm going to buy it. Got to so, get the books going. So we'll, we're definitely going to be, we support all our guests. Again, you can go and find uh, all the past episodes on our Facebook page. Just search Sports and More Podcast. Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Instagram coming soon, Eddie. <clears throat> Instagram, I guess, is coming soon. We are taking photos of different things so we can have some content on there. We do have a Twitter, and we really invite you send us some comments, send us some questions. We're going to start reading comments from our followers uh, f- uh, from Twitter. And yeah, as soon as we start getting comments, we're going to read them. And I'm going to say, hey, this is from uh, Asa Costa today. Say, why did you guys pick the Slam Diego Padres last week? Hey, get to support the brand. Yeah. Right? So anyways, uh, hit us up on Twitter, Sports and More, P-O-D, sport, at Sports and More Pod. Uh, find us on Twitter again. Submit your questions. Submit your comments. We'll start reading our, our fan comments uh, very soon. Uh, so again, but we need you guys to ask uh, ask the questions. Give us the comments so that we can read them. Uh, we're, we're on Facebook. Like I said, if you want to put your comments there, we'll, you can do that too. Uh, but follow us. Uh, don't miss an episode. We got all our episodes posted on our Facebook and Twitter page. Uh, also on Anchor. So um, and if you need a, if you want me to send you the, 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 the podcast weekly, I can send it to you directly. Uh, but just let me know via Facebook or Twitter. That's right. I am another week and, uh, we will see you here again next week. Ace reporting live from the downtown spaces here in downtown El Paso, five twenty two San Francisco. Thank you again, Ace. And we'll see everybody next week. Yeah.